0: Hello everybody, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Dr. Kevin Dutton. He's a psychologist, author, and elite performance consultant whose research focuses on psychopathic personality and elite cognition. Psychopaths get a bad rap, perhaps understandably. They have a branding problem, to say the least. But there are some personality traits like emotional control, focus, drive, and single-mindedness that elite performers can model off to improve their effectiveness every day. Expect to learn how psychopathy exists at all, why teams kicking second in a penalty shootout have a 30% greater chance of missing, why psychopath pilots in World War II didn't make it home even though they won their fights, how different accents can be more prejudiced against than different races, why splitting the world into categories creates a foundation for huge biases to occur, and bunch more. Don't forget, you might be listening but not subscribed and you're going to miss episodes when they go up if you do that and you don't want to. The next few weeks have got some of the biggest guests I've ever had on the show. So go to the follow button in the middle on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. There's a plus in the top right hand corner. It really does support the show and it makes me very happy indeed and it ensures that you're not going to miss those episodes. Thank you. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite, and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over thirty-seven. Thousand companies have already made the move, so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Kevin Dutton. Kevin Dutton, welcome to the show. Cheers, Chris.
1: Thanks for having me, mate. How are
0: you? I'm well, thank you. How do you describe what you do for work? What is your area of expertise, if there is one?
1: Well, I'm a psychologist. That's number one. Um, I'm talking to you uh, from down under, mate, in, uh, in Adelaide, uh, where it's 8.30 in the morning at the moment, um, so bright and early. Uh, and I'm Professor of the Public Understanding of Psychology. At the University of Adelaide, so that is Australia's first professor of such a thing. So I'm Australia's first professor of the public understanding of psychology, which basically means that I uh, bring psychology to the general public. Uh, so psychology is a very broad church; it's got loads of subdisciplines and and different areas of study, everything from forensic to social to developmental to educational to sport, uh, all those kinds of things. And so, what my job is uh, down here is to uh, collate the best of that kind of uh, information and um, make it accessible to the general public. So that's what I do for a living. That's my day job. Uh, My area of expertise, um, as most people will probably recognize me for, is psychopaths. Uh, So um, many years ago, well, about 10 years ago now, I wrote a, a book called The Wisdom of Psychopaths. Uh, which became very controversial, Um, and it's still, I think, the only book that um, suggests that psychopaths aren't all bad, that um, actually, you know, we have this stereotype of psychopaths being rapists and serial killers and what have you, but actually if you were to look inside the realms of special forces, for example, you'd also find people who are high on what I call the psychopathic spectrum. Um, so when I wrote Wisdom of Psychopaths, as I say, it became a controversial book, um, it became quite well known. And it was on the basis of that, really, that I suppose, you know, if you can say this kind of thing, I kind of made my name in psychology.
0: So you would be the current Australian equivalent in psychology of Brian Cox for physics in the UK. Oh, well. Uh-
1: I, l- listen, don't put me down like that, mate. Don't you dare! <laughs> don't you dare put me down like that. What did it know? Actually, Brian's over here doing a big tour at the moment.
0: Yeah, um,
1: he's uh, he's doing a great big tour. Um, yeah, I mean, oh, God, listen, I'd I'd uh, I'd go I'd go with that. Um, yeah, at the moment, uh, obviously not doing the big stadium shows uh, like Brian, but uh, one can only hope. Uh, okay, Chris. but uh, yeah, no, absolutely, mate.
0: Talk to me about the adaptive explanation for how psychopathy exists. Why would it be that evolution creates humans that have that particular mix of traits?
1: Well, it's true, isn't it? I think, first of all, it's probably a good idea to define what a what a psychopath actually is, uh, Chris, because there's a lot of misnomers about psychopaths, mate. Um, so it might help you listeners to just get a kind of a, a brief description of what they are. I mean, it's true, isn't it? When most people hear the word psychopath, they instantly think of, um, uh, you know, on the silver screen, serial killers like Hannibal Lecter um, and in real life um, serial killers like Ted Bundy. But actually when psychologists like myself talk about psychopaths, mate, we're actually referring to a distinct subset of individuals with a specific constellation of personality traits, uh, such as uh, ruthlessness, fearlessness, mental toughness, self-confidence, coolness under pressure, Uh, emotional detachment uh, focus charm charisma and of course those those trademark deficits in in conscience and empathy that you hear so much about now none of those traits is necessarily a problem in itself chris in fact all of them dialed up at the right levels and deployed within the right context can actually prove rather useful okay the key here as I've always said, lies in context and level. So imagine, for instance, a personality mixing desk, probably the best way of thinking about it, on which those traits that I've just outlined comprise the, um, the, the the kind of hodgepodge of knobs and sliders, okay? Twiddle them up and down in various combinations and you arrive at two conclusions, all right? The first one is that there is no objectively correct setting at which those dials might be positioned, but rather it will invariably depend on Uh, caught on context on the particular set of circumstances you might happen to find yourself in the second and this comes back to answering your question the second is there exist certain jobs or professions for example that by their very definition um might demonstrate what we might call precision engineered psychopathy that might by their very nature have those dials turned up a little bit higher than you might find in everyday life so give you a couple of examples imagine you've got. Um, the skill set to be a top surgeon, all right, but that you lack the ability to emotionally disengage from the people that you're operating on. Well, you're not going to cut it, Oh, right? Well, quite literally, in fact, you're not going to cut it. Sorry, mate, I didn't mean that on purpose. <laughs> um, imagine you've got the um, financial and um, uh, strategic smarts uh, to be a top business person, but that you lack the ability to fire someone if they're underperforming, uh, that ruthlessness to let someone go or the coolness under pressure to ride out a storm or the sheer uh, balls necessary to take a calculated risk when appropriate, okay? Again, you're not going to make it, are you? Imagine you've got the um, ability to be a top lawyer, but you lack the almost pathological self-confidence, that almost narcissism to be the center of attention in the middle of a packed courtroom. Now, those uh, characteristics, those traits that I've just outlined for you there, ruthlessness, fearlessness, self-confidence, emotional detachment, and coolness under pressure, Comprise five core characteristics of the psychopathic personality. Now, would you say they were dysfunctional in those contexts? I certainly wouldn't, and I've written books on that and papers on that. So to answer your question, now we've defined psychopathy and given you examples in everyday life. If we go back to, say, the days of our ancient evolutionary forefathers, you know, a couple of million years ago, when we were living in small groups on the East African savannas, You could imagine that there were certain characteristics such as the well aggression, uh, the ability to take risks, the ability to be predatorial in terms of hunting. You can see how and also the ability to tell lies, actually, to infiltrate other groups, maybe to get information out of them. You can see how these kinds of characteristics which are beneficial in the modern era actually might have evolved in eras um, long gone. Um, so the, the kind of, as I say, the James Bond profile, the ruthless, fearless, remorseless character actually that we see today does have its uses, not just in special forces and, and, um, and the agencies, MI 5 6 those kinds of things, but in, in, in everyday jobs like surgery and business, for example, uh, but also they would have been selected for many years ago for the reasons, um, that, that I just outlined.
0: So even though, uh, Raider or infiltrator of other tribe wasn't an occupation, it was a role. It was a role that needed filling, and because that needed filling, it was adaptive across an entire group for certain members of that group, probably not too many, because if you had a 150-person tribe and all of them were psychopaths, there would be way too much chaos. But I'm going to guess that the amount of psychopaths that we have proportionally at the moment would be the amount on average that was effective to keep a group moving forward.
1: You've absolutely nailed it there, Chris. In fact, there's a a branch of psychology um, and information science. If you were to draw the Venn diagrams between psychology and information science and decision making, uh, you've got um, an area that we call game theory. You might have heard of it. Um, And when game theorists model the incidence, the prevalence of psychopathy, psychopathic personalities um, within the general public, uh, which is roughly about one percent of people as psychopaths what we would regard as diagnosed psychopaths um then game theory when you look at the game theory models they actually bear that out in the computer algorithms as well uh so you're absolutely right you can't have it, well you can't have a society which is all psychopaths because it wouldn't be a society uh, that's the first thing um it's interesting an interesting parallel is with the uh, with the vikings many years ago they had um, a group of um, well I suppose you could call them very early special forces uh, soldiers called the Berserkers and it's where we get the word berserk from um, and the I mean the Vikings were pretty fierce enough, but the Berserkers took it to an absolute extreme, so they kind of were the were almost like the special forces when they' the vikings and they fought with uh, a, a, an absolute trance like frenzy. Uh, and obviously contributed to the Viking's fearsome reputation down the years. The problem with the berserkers was they were fantastic in wartime, but they were absolutely terrible in peacetime because they were constantly looking for fights. Um, probably a bit like your days in the Newcastle nightclubs, mate, actually.
0: (laughs) I think there were some berserkers that Um, I might have been a few berserkers on the streets of
1: Newcastle back in the day.
0: Definitely some Viking DNA floating around. Well talk talk to me when it comes to psychopaths, one of the interesting things there, confidence under pressure, the ability to deal with that stuff. What was that study that looked at Penalty takers trying to win versus penalty takers trying not to lose or trying to catch up on the score sheet.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting that. So uh, there was a study which looked at um, what people, and obviously England, we've got the World Cup coming up um, uh, next month. I don't, for God's sake, don't ask me about that, mate. Um, but um, yeah, there was, we, there was a study done which looked at who was most likely to uh, score penalties in a penalty shootout. And, you know, most people watching a penalty shootout would think that the pressure is equally high on everybody. Uh, but actually, when you look and you, you kind of analyse it, there's different pressures depending on whether you are taking a penalty to keep your team in the competition or whether you are taking a penalty to put your team through. Uh, so if you're taking a penalty to put your team through, uh, the pressure is actually less than uh, the pressure on you if you're taking a penalty to keep your team in because our brains have evolved a bias towards loss rather than reward. Um, if you think back to our evolutionary history, if you face faced with a rustle in the bushes uh, and you make a wrong decision and you think, oh, well, that's nothing, um, then it can come out of the bush and eat you pretty quickly. It might not be the breeze. It might be a saber-toothed tiger. Um, so actually, our brains have evolved a bias towards loss aversion. We don't want to make a mistake. We don't want to have uh, a, a, a situation where we are complacent and where we mistake something uh, which is eventually going to eat us, So, which is going to lose us our lives. So. Those kinds of evolutionary biases that evolved many years ago are still with us today in in football stadiums when it comes to penalty shootouts. So if you're taking a penalty, which if you miss is going to put your team out, that loss is really weighing on your mind way more than if you know you're going to score and you're going to put your team through. The stakes, at least the way the brain computes it, Chris, are much higher if you're taking a penalty to stay in. Do you know what the relative percentages are? I think it's something like, off the top of my head, mate, I think it's something like 62% of people score uh, when, it's putting, when, when you're taking a penalty to uh, keep your team in. And I think it's roughly about 90% score when it's uh, taking a penalty to put your team through. Uh so it's something like that. It's something like sixty ninety. So it's still the majority of people score, but when you're putting your when you're taking a penalty to put your team through, way more people score. I suppose Although if you're talking about England, mate, I'm not I, maybe that study, maybe that study doesn't want, wasn't done in England. Yes. <laughs> it's just never.
0: Um Yeah. What that means is when you're doing a normal penalty shootout, let's say that you're into the um knockout stages of a competition and you get to the end, there is a huge advantage. There is a 30% advantage to the team that gets to take the penalties first. Let's say that each team continues to score. That's right. It's 4-4 with the final two penalties to go. If team one misses and team two scores, team one is out. But team one never faces the situation, game theoretically, of that 30% disparity between... The, the success or failure uh, concern. So there is a huge. I mean, that, that's the most important, way more important than who which end do you get, who gets to kick off first. Yeah. The most important thing, perhaps in an entire competition, is who gets to take the penalties first.
1: It, it's it's uh, literally it's who wins the toss. You're absolutely right. That that um, that what we call in psychology interacts. Uh, you know, the who wins that toss interacts with you know your ability. Uh, to actually score. Penalty shootouts are very interesting. There's a lot, of, you, a lot of, you could almost have a degree in penalty shootouts. You know, you could almost like set up an entire degree course in it. Um, there's loads and loads of different ways a penalty shootout can go wrong, how things prey on the mind. Um, the best thing to do in a penalty shootout is, well, first of all, to practice them, which England are now doing. That's the first thing, Chris. Uh, the second thing is to make your mind up and just go for it. So literally, um, a lot of penalties are missed, not in the run up, which uh, people think is is often the case. But actually, the penalty is often missed when you put the ball down. If you imagine a player, if you put the ball down and then you turn around and you walk away from the ball to a point where you're going to begin your run up. And that point in that when you put the ball down and you turn away and you begin the walk to your run up. That is when it goes wrong most of the time, because that's all of a sudden when last minute doubts or changes of mind can creep in. Um, All that kind of noise uh, that that uh, usually disrupts the clarity of thought uh, that can creep in and you can change your mind at the last minute without you even knowing you're going to do it. So the way around that is to absolutely decide from the word go, no matter what happens, it's top, left, bottom, right or what have you. Um, from a psychological point of view, that's the best way of winning a penalty shootout, to be absolutely confident, to be absolutely certain.
0: I also heard that nine out of 10 deaths on Everest mm. happen on the way down. And you had some similar story about fighter pilots in World War Two, maybe, that were super successful in a dogfight, but then not so good afterward.
1: Absolutely right. Well, um, yes, that's true. Some in World War Two. Um, Some of the uh, greatest fighter pilots um, who were absolutely brilliant in aerial combat, uh, ruthless and and fearless, um, lost their lives on the journey home because such was their laser like focus to winning the dogfights at all costs um, that they took their minds off the fuel gauges. Um, And that's a typical psychopathic characteristic. Might I say so, um, you know, if you it's really interesting, actually, I've uh, I know quite a few fighter pilots uh, through various contacts I'll have in the military. And there's uh, there, there, there's a kind of an old joke that you can tell a fighter pilot within about a minute of talking to them because they'll tell you they are. Um, and it's uh, it's actually very true. And they've got a license to do that because just as James Bond has a license to kill, I think we all have various licenses to do something. You don't get a fighter pilot without an ego. OK, in order to be top gun, you've got to have a bit of an ego, Chris. And I think people who do that kind of job are licensed to have that e- that, that kind of ego. Uh, and they're also pretty. They might be very nice men, but they're also pretty ruthless, uh, pretty fearless and very cool under pressure. Um, now, what you find, as I was saying, going back to what you're saying in the olden days during, during the Second World War, that ruthlessness and fearlessness sometimes uh, would, would result in tunnel vision where the pilots were so intent on winning dogfights at all costs that actually they took their minds off the fuel gauges and, of course, ran out of fuel on the way home um and um and paid the penalty obviously so um yeah absolutely right it's all there's a balance to be struck mate there's a balance to be struck between you know getting the job done and uh, and playing a percentage game
0: you've got this quote from your new book which says what makes the number the optimal number of categories for anything is usually a trade-off between practicality and precision yeah what do you mean by that? Why did evolution give creatures the ability to categorize at
1: all? Well, if you think about it, Chris, um, everything out there <clears throat> is on a continuum. Okay. So you could have um, gender, sexual orientation, race, skin color, uh, colors of the electromagnetic spectrum. Everything out there is gray and in order to make sense of reality in order to work out how its multitude of different elements relate to and interact with each other we need to dissect its um amorphous unstructured content into smaller sharper uh, self-contained bite-sized units okay we in order to to, to make sense of reality this continuum Um, We need to construct for ourselves the illusion of a checkerboard surface, okay, Uh, along which we can move sense and and reason like rational thinking chess pieces in an orderly, predictable and, and rule based fashion. Otherwise, everything and anything would mean anything and everything we've got to have categories in the world it was really funny actually only yesterday i was sitting in the adelaide oval having a having a bit of lunch and there was a um not far from where i live and a groundsman was out cutting the grass and he was mowing it you know like you know groundsman cut the grass they cut patterns and he was going up and down up and down up and down and then he was going across and across and across and it struck me as a real metaphor for life mate because actually you know reality out there is just one big sea of green Big one, big sea of green grass, but our brains kind of think the way lawn cut. They think in far straight lines, um, and as a result of the grass cutting, he'd kind of he'd basically turned the, the the sea of green grass into a lattice of lime and emerald, as as you know, and that's very much the way our brains dissect and cut up uh, reality. We must have categories in the world in order to make sense of it, in order to survive. I mean, I'll give you an example. If you didn't have pass and fail in exams, what would be the point of having exams? Okay. Now, um, I know this is an unfair one, but what's the point of having speed limits? Well, otherwise, everyone's going to be driving as fast or as slow as they want. Now, if you're done doing thirty-four in a, I think it's a ten percent, isn't it? So, rule. So, if you're done doing thirty-four in a in a thirty mile an hour zone, right? Technically, you can get away with thirty-three. Um, if you're done doing 34, it might seem really unfair. One mile an hour over the limit. But okay, so what are you going to do about that? Well, okay, what about make it 37? Well, okay, what 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 if you what if you're doing 36? What if your mate's doing 36 and you're done 37? Again, you're gonna think it is unfair. So we have to be able to draw lines in this multitude of continua that are out there, Chris, in order to make sense of reality and in order to, to make sense of the relationships between different parts of it. Now, to go back to your question, our brains evolve what I call a categorization instinct for that reason, in order to make sense of reality, in order to make it more predictable, in order to enable us to behave rationally and in order to simplify it things okay um great quote one of my favorite quotes of all time by noel gallagher and his brother liam sums it all up and he, he said that liam is a man with a fork in a world of soup and i think <laughs> i think we're all men with and women we're born with forks in a world of soup mate we, we 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 have we live in this kind of liquid amorphous structure and our brains have kind of got this kind of black and white way of trying to capture it and it doesn't work and that's where a lot of the problems arise in in everyday life because we, we we're born with these binary black and white brains that we evolved many years ago and yet technological advancement has uh, produced a world which is far more complex than the world in which our ancestors grew up in um so um where it gets interesting i think is when other needs apart from uh, simplicity uh, and functionality start taking over from the original needs for categorization now i think a great example of this now i'm not digging anyone out here by the way i think a great example of this occurred a few years ago on a on a budget airline um where you know when you're on a on an any airline you get the duty free trolley coming down selling perfumes and, and what have you uh what a duty free trolley, uh, trolley kind of start coming down the aisle Um, And one of the passengers on the plane took exception to the fact that the perfumes were divided up into male and female, and they thought that was very last century, Um, and they wrote a a letter of complaint to the airline saying, look, this is, yeah, surely you can do better than that, you know, this this is, you know, pandering to the binary gender kind of stuff. Um, you know, actually, these should all be put in the same drawer and they shouldn't be differentials made between male and female. Uh, And actually, the airline, I believe, acquiesced to that. Um, Now, that's very interesting. So you're objecting to male-female categories on the basis of identity. And yet, if you think about what that means, it absolutely... Um, decreases the functionality of selling perfumes on a plane. Because if you're not a perfume aficionado, I don't know whether Givenchy, whatever is, you know, a male or a female perfume. Somebody else, they could be buying a present for their wife or their, or their husband or whatever. So if you've got them all in the same drawer, you're kind of doubling your search time in a sense because well, you're um, rambling around trying to find wherever it is, whereas imagine, if you've got one drawer and another, yeah. it's
0: easy to find it. Imagine if we had all of our clothing stores, where instead of there being a men's floor and a woman's floor, they were all just mixed <laughs> together and you couldn't work out, actually, is this ma- is this a guy's pair of jeans or is this a girl's pair of jeans? And you'd have to sort right. through twice as much of uh, right, uh, the I'm items it. in, in order to get through that. Yeah, well, uh, Right, why are putting it? So what you're talking about is that we have an environment now with far more complexity than we were used to when we try and apply our pattern identification thinking and to try to categorize things that sometimes gets hijacked
1: absolutely right that that's exactly that's you've nailed it with the uh with the clothing analogy an even better one than well you know actually the perfume analogy i'm sure there would be people that would be uh would be pushing for something like that but that is where you get we we, we evolved the categorizing categorization instinct to simplify the world and we've got to be careful that in the current day and age Um, That original categorization instinct for those original reasons isn't hijacked by other needs that may well be important, but actually don't simplify the world at all and make it much more complex and then make it far more difficult to make decisions for the benefit of most people people so that's that's a great example of this is um is the color spectrum that's what most people understand so when you look at a rainbow chris and you stand away from it you see seven primary colors you see red orange yellow green blue indigo and violet however the closer you get to a spectrum the less clear and apparent those seven primary colors become and actually when you get right up close to say red and orange it's very, very difficult, in fact, impossible to tell the colors apart when you look on the border. When does red f- fade into orange? When does orange fade into yellow? It's actually impossible because there's infinite gradations. So why do we perceive seven colors? Well, we perceive seven colors at a distance because our brains have made a decision for us over millions of years of evolutionary history that actually seven's about the optimal number of colors that we need to see in order to get by. All right. We don't need to see four million shades of red. It's a waste of time, mate. So we can get by with seven colours. Our brains are kind of thought, okay, that's about right. So there you go. Now, incidentally, of course, that's just Western cultures. There are some cultures, such as the uh, Burinmo in Papua New Guinea, that don't see a difference between blue and green. Actually, it's called no. Blue and green are the same colour. No to them. way. Yeah. Oh, yeah, mate. Yeah. So I mean, so that we're talking here from a from a Western. You know, you're in America. I'm in Australia. We're both from the UK. Um, we're talking about our own perspective. But actually there, you know, seven primary colours, there are some um, cultures around the world which only see four or five. Um, So, for example, I mean, a very uh, good friend of mine, a colleague, um, two colleagues, Jules Davidoff and Debbie Robeson, give them a bit of a plug, um, have done lots of studies with um, tribes in Papua New Guinea and also the Himba tribe um, down in in Namibia, northern Namibia in Africa. Um, And they've looked at you know, if you present various colour swatches, you know, like the old Dulux colour swatches, if you present 20 shades of green, to say a Burinmo, I think it's a Burinmo, person in Papua New Guinea, uh, they will, and they're all very, very slightly different, they will be able to pinpoint those minute differences between those 20 shades of green. If you were to show us, me and you, those 20 shades of green, we're probably looking and go, can't tell the difference at all. However, if you were to then put a green swatch next to a blue swatch, me and you could tell the difference very easily, but the Burinmo probably wouldn't be able to do it. Very interesting. That's okay. how the brain works,
0: mate. Okay, so what happens if people categorise too narrowly? If people get into this categorisation across their entire life, this has something to do with hoarders, I think.
1: That's right, yeah. So studies have been done uh, looking at hoarders and... If you categorize too narrowly, so if you think, so most of us would, you know, if you think of say like um, a washing up liquid bottle, um, we would be able to say, okay, uh, one washing up liquid bottle, who cares? You know, there's other washing up liquid bottles, which, um, you know, they're all the same, pretty much. Um, you know, we can do with one. Uh, they're all in the same category, pretty much. We can you know, do without, the, you know, one, one will do us. Hoarders, Look at it the other way. Hoarders are unable to see the commonalities between, say, a particular object or entity like a washing up bottle. Every single one is different and has its own unique kind of features. And so if you start thinking like that, it's very difficult to throw one away or throw nine, if you've got 20 of them, it's difficult to throw 19 of them away and just keep the one because actually they're not the same thing as you and I might see it, they are all got their own individual idiosyncratic features about them. And so when we think about hoarders, there's a lot of other things going on with hoarders as well, but if you think about hoarders as being, uh, oh, you know, they're just mad or crazy or filthy or whatever, actually, as usual, uh, when you look at the psychology behind it, uh, the brain works in very mysterious ways. And I call, uh, in my book, I call uh, uh, hoarding uh, a categorization disorder. Uh, because it's we're just seeing category they're, they're seeing categories of objects in a different way to us, whereas we look at say i don't know um, a newspaper as being okay, you know it says there's loads of different newspapers, loads of different editions, um, you know we don't need five thousand you know newspapers or whatever all tied up in bundles. they see it very differently. Each one has got its own individual properties and though and so each one must therefore be preserved, and that's why it's very, very difficult. Um, for um, uh, hoarders to throw stuff away. Incidentally, the reverse of that is, um, you might know this, that there are some world leaders um, who uh, simplify their wardrobes um, because they realise that every decision that we make, even a very simple one, like when we get up in the morning, what am I going to wear this morning, um, is uh, a drain on the brain's battery. And sometimes those decisions can, especially in terms of what you wear. I mean, I know people that actually, you know, um, and I'm speaking on behalf of a friend here, by the way, Chris, um, who who actually really, you know, sometimes take a very long time to decide what they're going to wear in the morning. Um, So uh, Barack Obama, for instance, um, that's why he pretty much always wore a a, a dark blue or navy suit and a white or a blue shirt and a very plain tie, because he didn't have to decide what he was going to wear in the morning it was pretty much a uniform um, and that's actually the psychology of uniforms as well you don't have to waste time deciding on abstract entities like what am I going to wear what am I, how am I going to appear it's done for you uh, and so that ability to make decisions automatically rather than you know well who am I trying to appeal to what image or vibe am I trying to give off all these kind of category selections we're making in our brains is taken away from us because making decisions based on categories can often be a real drain, as I say, on on our cognitive batteries.
0: Talk to me about the relationship between cognitive complexity and cognitive closure, because there's this Frankel brunswick study thing (laughs) that I thought was absolutely fascinating. What's that?
1: Yeah, well, cognitive closure, uh, we all differ. We're all on a spectrum, and we all differ on the amount of information that we need to make decisions now that's not linked to intelligence chris okay um so i know very intelligent people that just differ in their ability in 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 the amount of information they need to feel comfortable to make a decision so sometimes we get people that we all know them we need to chew over every single aspect of a problem they can never get enough information in order to make a decision and they go on and on and on trying to work out what the various aspects are and how they relate to each other sometimes on even very very simple decisions those people have what we call a very high need for cognitive complexity Uh, and then we get people who have a low need for cognitive complexity who are able to just see a couple of bits of information say okay more of a gut instinct, that's all I need. Um, and to add a little bit of complexity to that situation, uh, we differ in terms of our need for cognitive, cognitive complexity in various aspects of our life. So, for example, I kind of tend to need quite a bit of information to make decisions. I'm allowed, I'm licensed to do that. I'm a boffin, I'm an academic mate. However, when I go into a restaurant, I'm like a new restaurant, I don't know, I'm lightning fast at looking at a menu, making up my mind what i want to eat now don't ask me how that works mate i've no idea but i'm very very good at going to a restaurant saying okay that'll do so within a restaurant situation a new restaurant situation ordering a dinner i have a low need for cognitive complexity but there are other aspects where i need a high need for cognitive complexity uh, and that's linked to what we call cognitive closure in other words our ability to bring the shutters down on a decision okay look that's it I've made the decision on this um, I'm happy with that so uh, a high need for cognitive closure is 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 related to cognitive complexity but not the same thing High need for cognitive closure is how comfortable we are at keeping something going um, rather than you know just wanting a need to get it over with and that decision's done now of course won't go into too much of all this but you've got a two by two grid here haven't you you've got people that have a high need and a low need for cognitive complexity and then you've got people with a high and a low need for cognitive closure and when you start going nuts is when you've got a really high need for cognitive complexity in other words you need lots of information to make a decision but you've also got a high need for cognitive closure in other words you might want all the information but blimey you really want to shut something down quickly The two kind of relate. So high need for cognitive complexity, high need to get it over with. um, Actually, that's when you start going nuts. Now, interestingly, there have been studies done uh, looking at high needs for uh, cognitive complexity. And actually, um, again, not to go into too much detail about it, but extremists and fundamentalists of most persuasions have uh, low need for cognitive complexity and a high need for cognitive closure in other words they don't really need too much information to make their minds up and they're very happy making their minds up sharpish uh so when you get and of course it's not quite as simple as that there's other um so socio-cultural factors going on with fundamentalism and extremism but generally speaking if you look at the cognitive profile if you've got a low need for cognitive complexity In other words, you don't really need too much information to make your mind up and a high need for cognitive closure you like to get things over with. You're kind of veering into extremism category there, uh, territory there rather.
0: Well, it makes a lot of sense that that person would be very easily hijacked, right? You know, they want an answer to why this particular incident occurred, somebody meets their threshold which happens to be incredibly low they attach their sense of self-worth to it and then you're off to the races with ideology and all of the protectionist strategies that we create around ourselves we attach ourselves to groups and so on and so forth so i have to presume that the inbuilt desire for categorization has some relationship with tribalism
1: oh for sure absolutely right um and there's these days, it's very interesting, Chris, when we look at what's happening on the web, mate, social media and the Internet. Um, there's actually a, a phrase uh, which is which is uh, done the doing the rounds started a couple of years ago, um, almost in like the uh, the post truth kind of stuff, uh, which which, uh, you know, reached his peak with Trump um, called tribal epistemology. Uh, it's a long old word. Uh, Tribal epistemology is basically, well, um, nothing's true anymore, um, objectively speaking, but it's true for your group or tribe. And therefore, because it's true for your group or tribe, it's real. Uh, And that's very, very interesting because then we start getting into all kinds of smoke and mirrors and truth chambers and echo chambers on, on the web as well. But yes, you're absolutely right. Um, group norms, um, group mores, group uh, the, the idea of, of of stories and anecdotes which swirl around a group to keep groups together, and over the centuries and over the years, become fused in truth. And as a result of that, um, these kinds of things, the brain has has evolved a, a propensity. Uh, to distrust uh, information coming from other groups and to place perhaps too much trust and validity in the information which is a currency in your own group uh, because obviously, you know, you, you, you're, you've you got something in common with those people in your group. Uh, you've got a common goal. You've got a common background. And, of course, as any con man will tell you, uh, people are way more likely to believe you if you are one of them than if you're an outsider.
0: Didn't you spend a bunch of time with con men? Didn't you do a ton of research with them? What happened there?
1: I, I did. Um, that was my first book, actually, "Flipnosis," um, and uh, it started. You know what, Chris? It started with with my old man, mate. I grew up in uh, in in London. My my dad. Uh, you remember only fools and horses, don't you? Well, my dad was like Del Boy. I mean, he even looked like Del Boy. Um, he could, I always make a joke. He could sell shaving cream to the Taliban, mate. He could sell, he could sh- he could sell anything to anybody, my old man. And he was a psychopath. He wasn't a violent man. He was ruthless. He was fearless. He was shameless. I never once saw him embarrassed. And he could do things that most normal people would find psychologically impossible. And I, it was pretty much him that got me started, even as a young lad into psychology and he was he was a con man uh so that was my roots basically and i I mean i'll give you an example i mean i always remember one time i must have been about 10 or 11 uh we got hold of a load of gear i used to help him on the stall and uh he got hold of a load of diaries uh calendar diaries you know and um they were very different to the usual kinds of stuff that we got our hands on because they were actually good they were actually nice these diaries they were they were leather they were embossed they were slimline and there was a very good reason for that anyway i always remember one saturday afternoon on the stall we knocked out about 300 of these they went like hotcakes uh and uh, after about a couple of hours and we got back to the flat and uh, remember i'm only about 10 or 11 i, I couldn't resist it. i said to dad i said yeah, i said those diaries went like, okay, so they were nice, weren't they? they were, you know, they were leathering, but they were thin. And he goes, oh, yes, son, they were thin, all right. There's a reason for that. I said, well, what was that? And he said, April was missing. And I'm not joking, Chris. He gets one out of the drawer, mate. January, February, March, May. I said, here. Yeah. I, remember my telling, I said, well, we've just sold about three hundred of these. Dad, I said, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. I'll never forget it, Chris. He said, nothing for now, son, but come March the 31st, make sure you pack your swimming trunks because we're off to Torremolinas for six weeks. That was the kind of geezer he was. So when I eventually kind of, um, he's dead now. So listen, if there's any coppers watching, it's long gone. Long gone. Um, when I uh, eventually uh, started studying psychology, I was obviously very interested in how people were. Good at persuasion, like my old man. Um, and eventually after I, you know, got my PhD and all that, um, I uh, wrote a book on uh persuasion. Um, because I was interested to see whether there were limits to persuasion. Could if you had enough skill, uh, would you be able to persuade anybody to do anything? Um, or were there limits on on persuasion? Um and i mean i'll give you another example of of, of my old man giving his arm was again a young kid helped him on the stall, uh took me out to an indian restaurant up in brick lane the east end of london uh that night and just as he's about to pay the bill and this is crucial chris i'll never forget it just as he's about to pay the bill he turns around and he says kev if there's if there's one thing i want you to remember in life son it's this persuasion ain't about getting people to do what they don't want to do it's about giving people a reason to do what they do want to do Mm -hmm. very very if you're a salesperson who's trying to get someone to do something bear that in mind okay push against an open door and he says watch and learn so with that give an example what he done he took his spoon and he tinkled it against his glass right entire restaurant falls silent told you he was a psychopath and he gets to his feet and he says right i'd just like to thank everyone for coming now, I know that some of you have come from just around the corner. Some of you come from a little bit further afield. Uh, but I want you to know that you're all very welcome. It's very much appreciated. Oh, there's a party across the road in the King's Arms, uh, which will be hosting a little drinks reception later tonight there. Uh, you're all welcome to pop along, at which point he starts to clap, right? which point the entire restaurant starts to clap, doesn't it? So picture the scene, Chris. All of a sudden, we've got a restaurant full of people, never seen us before, never seen each other before, all applauding politely because right, none of them want to be seen as a gay crashers at a party, right? That was the genius of it. Well, anyway, as we're leaving, remember, we're only about nine or ten. I can't resist it. So I said, here, Dad, I said, I mean, we're not really going to the pub, are we? And he puts his arm around me, Chris, and I'll never forget it. He says, course not, son, but let me tell you something. That lot in the restaurant, are oh, my mate Malcolm, he's just taken over as landlord. He'll make a few quid tonight. Now, can you imagine the kind of balls that you would need to even think about pulling a stunt like that. But that's the kind of thing he did. So having grown up with me, old man, always in the back of my mind was, can anyone persuade anyone to do anything or are there limits? So uh, I had uh, contacts at the time, um, various branches of the police, um, so there used to be a show called Hustle on BBC years ago, you might remember it, uh, not the real Hustle, but the one with Adrian Lester, which was a group of long con artists who were psychological geniuses. So I had access to a couple of guys like that, a few guys like that, and I spent about um, about half a year hanging out and looking at, at what they did. Uh, and I wanted to know basically, mate, who knew more about persuasion? Me, who was the boffin who'd learned it out of the books, or them who were the evil geniuses of persuasion who derived it all from first principles, living on their wits on the street. Um, And I would say it was pretty much a draw. Um, I knew all the technical terms. They knew how to do it. Um, And the bottom line, um, because I'm sure people aren't going to run off and buy (laughs) flipnosis, or they never know. Um, The bottom line is, if look, there's a lot of science on persuasion and influence, but it boils down to this. If you can get someone to like you and if you can frame what you want so that it appeals to the other person's self-interest and not your own, you're pretty much there. Because no one's going to do something for someone they don't like. And we're all going to do something that benefits ourselves. So if you can frame something so it's in someone's self-interest and also get them to like you then pretty much you're home and dried, okay? Now, I'll give you a great example of self-interest. One of my favourite stories in persuasion, I think it was Baron Delphont many years ago. It was Lord Gr- Lou Gray's brother, TV mogul. And um, he hears on the grapevine that there's a young man who's looking for a job. And this young guy pops into his office one day, true story this, and he says, I'm looking for a job. And, and, and Delphont says, right, here on the grapevine that you're a genius persuader. So I've got a little challenge for you see that water jug, and he puts his water jug on the desk in front of him, he says, see this water jug here, just like they said, I want you to sell it to me, right, it's a nightmare situation, right, so the young bloke thinks about it for a minute, and then undaunted, he gets to his feet, and he wanders over the corner of the room, and he picks up the waste paper basket, carries it over to delfont's desk, empties the contents of the waste paper basket out on the desk in front of him, so there's, I don't know, all kinds of bits of paper on there, whatever, whatever, and he takes delfont's cigar lighter, takes the a water jug away Puts it out of his reach And sets light To the pile of rubbish In front of it With a cigar light And he says to Delphont Right how much Are you going to give me for it as, a, as his Basically his office Is about to burst into flames That Is how you persuade Someone to buy a water jug Son Alright You basically What you do Is you reframe the situation so that all of a sudden it's really in their self-interest to buy it off you. So you can't change the value of the water jug objectively, but by manipulating the context, you can change it subjectively. So the bottom line of gnosis, hanging out with all them con artists, if you want to persuade someone to do something, basically get them to like it, which is why humour is very important. If you can make someone laugh, it's very, it's, it's, it's very important. Uh, I, think it was, I think it was Victor Borgia, the Argentinian playwright, who said that humor is the shortest distance between two people. Laughter is the shortest distance between two people. So make them laugh, get them to like you, frame it in their self-interest. And you've got the ingredients for persuasion.
0: Draw the line for me between that persuasion and supercategories and how supercategories can be so persuasive. I think there was some a very useful, innovative language that was used around the Brexit marketing campaign as well what what's yeah. going on there
1: yeah well right and wrong us and them are basically um categories super categories which have um evolved um through many many years of evolution so going back to our prehistoric ancestors on the um savannas of east africa they were living in small groups so uh, us and them is basically that in-group bias that I was talking to you about, okay? So we have a bias to favor members of our own group against bias, uh, against um, uh, basically uh, discriminating um, and and favoring members of an out group, okay? Uh, Right versus wrong. Uh, basically, the moral instinct evolved to keep groups together. And we kind of touched on that a little bit earlier. So if you don't have a sense of right and wrong, then you are more likely just to act out of a complete and utter self-interest rather than the good of the group. So if you don't, once you've got the us and them uh, categorization established in your brain, you kind of need a moral uh categorization between right and wrong otherwise that group wouldn't stick together and the third super category uh to go with us and them right and wrong is fight or flight so basically that is you know the ability to either um move towards uh a stimulus in your environment or to move away from it uh so can i eat it or is it going to eat me so fight or flight right or wrong us and them uh, evolved it not quite in that order evolved fight flight us them right wrong obviously okay uh, and they're all survival what I call super categories. there's three super categories that our brains have evolved through millions of years of evolution now if you can use persuasion if you can set your language up to tap into those three super categories that our brains have evolved long ago uh, then whether you're right or whether you're wrong, Chris, you're going to get people sit up and, and take interest, mate. So if you think about the Brexit argument, as you rightly pointed out, fight or flight, okay, you think about the language that was used in the early days by Nigel Farage, by Boris Johnson, by the exit lobby. Look, are we going to stand up to these European bureaucrats? Are we going to let them roll all over us? Fight or flight language, right? Us and them. What about these crazy edicts and decrees that are coming over from Brussels, you know, about bananas being too spendy or whatever? Um, are we, is this? What are we going to do about this? Are we going to just, you know, acquiesce to this, right or wrong? Is it right to allow Europe to dictate to us rules in our own country? You can see through the rhetoric, fight, flight, us, them, right, wrong. If you can frame your language so that presses those ancient super category buttons in our brains again as i say whether you're right or whether you're wrong you're going to get people to sit up and take notice that's what trump did by the way in america probably going to come as no surprise make america great again fight or flight we're going to fight against immigrants we're going to build a wall between the usa and mexico that's the us and them again right and wrong okay you've got them all there in trump's rhetoric and it was very funny when i was going back to flip Chris, I I interviewed a a top uh, QC in London, and um, I once asked him, I said, what makes a great barrister? What makes a great QC? I wasn't interested in the difference between what makes a bad one and a good one. That's not interesting. The interest is in most things. What's the difference between good and great? And he was a pupil master in his London chambers. And a pupil master basically means that um, that's where um, people with law degrees, um, the cream of the cream from London, Oxford and Cambridge, go to study to learn their trade. You've got these various chambers around London. So a little bit like teaching hospitals for law, basically. Yeah, uh, And he said, well, look, Kev, he said, you know, obviously I'll get the cream of the crop coming to me. He said, from all the top universities, he said, so, you know, the fact they've got brilliant minds, the fact that they have eidetic uh, photographic memories for facts and figures, the fact that they are able to get their heads around the details of a case really, really quickly is entry level. He said, that's entry level. They're all like that. And he said, but the one difference between the people that really become great uh, and forge a stellar career for themselves in advocacy and people who are good. Uh, is something you can't teach. And he said it's the ability to tell a story. He said that is a God-given talent that if you have that natural ability alongside the other characteristics I've told you, he said that kind of separates out uh, the great from the good, the wheat from the chaff. And I'll never forget it, Chris, coming back to what I was saying. Um, He said information travels around the brain like electricity around a circuit. It takes the path of least resistance. So, Kevy said, if you and I are up against each other in a court of law and you can assemble the facts of the case so that it goes around the minds of the jury quicker than I've assembled the facts of the case, you're going to win. No matter whether that's right or wrong, you're going to win because basically it goes around the minds of the jury quicker than my set of facts or the way I've arranged them. So it's very similar to the super categories uh what you got to remember chris the bottom line here is that our brains conflate simplicity for truth the simpler that i can make it for you to do something the more likely you are going to do it and there's a number of different ways we've already kind of talked about that you can you can do that but you're not going to do something for me mate if i make it difficult for you uh, it's just, it's a, a lot of persuasion is common sense. So, you know, as I say, it's get someone to like you, make it simple, make it in their own self-interest. You're halfway there. Well, you're more than halfway there. You're 85% there.
0: We see this online as well. So a lot of content creators, some of the ones that are the most well-followed, the most popular are the ones that have got the most fluent speech because fluency is used as a proxy for truthfulness. And I think a big part of that is Absolutely. The simplicity that, people are able to understand what they are saying because the friction between their brain and their mouth is as unencumbered as it's possible to be. The language that's being used is as precise as possible. It's no more words. It's no fewer words. It's no more complex. It's exactly where it needs to be. And that is, I mean, all, all of this stuff that you've brought up, um, the weaponizing of in-group, out-group bias, this is something else that yeah. we we'll see. Like The world that I exist in is online content creation, right? So I'm always very cautious whenever I see a community of people, whether it be online or or elsewhere, that appears to be bound together, not over the mutual love of an in-group, but over the mutual hatred of an out-group. You see this with the social justice movement online, which seems to be very fragilely held together by pointing at other heretics, people that aren't a part of them well, okay, what you're telling me there is that all you need to do is find someone that is currently a part of the in-group that can be pointed at as part of the out-group, and now they're shaved off the outside. This is the ever-increasing purity spiral, right? Ever more distilled and, and concentrated into the middle. And yeah, I mean, I had a look at this. Uh,
1: I love so, that, by the way. I love that purity spot. That's a great phrase, purity yes, spiral. It's,
0: it's, apparently, it's actually a thing. I've just made that made that up. But Oh, have you? Okay. No, no, it it, it exists yeah. online. And uh, I learned about the difference in prejudice between race and accent. Have you heard about this? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, go, go into a bit more detail. I probably have. but um... So uh, one of my friends, William Costello, evolutionary psychologist out here in Austin, UT, um, he was explaining the fact that there is a greater prejudice against people of the same race with a different accent than people of a different race with the same accent. and. The explanation for this is pretty simple that evolutionarily, ancestrally, it would have been very unlikely for us to encounter Correct. somebody of a different race, but very likely for us to encounter someone Correct. that has a slightly different dialect or a slightly different accent. And what that means is that you have very interesting um, crossing prejudices. Uh, And and counteracting prejudices, for instance, if you were to see an Arab man that walked into the room, but then started speaking like somebody that was from the south end of London or whatever it might be, if you have someone whose race and accent do not line up, for instance, I mean, everybody can think about this. If you were to see somebody walk into the room that is of a different race to you, but speaks with the same accent. Yeah, yeah. You would immediately think, well, there, we have an awful awful lot in common. You you Absolutely. forget you forget about the fact that they're of a different race. But then you flip that round. Okay, let's have somebody walk into the room who is of the same race as you, yep. but has an entirely different sort of accent. There That's is right. immediately a big distance. And I I just thought that that totally blew my mind. Okay, you're telling me that there is more prejudice against people with different accents than yep. people of different races. Like just. And- Totally and it makes off.
1: perfect sense uh, the way you've explained it. And William Costello um, absolutely nailed it right on the head there. The thing I would add to that um, is I was talking to uh, – I probably shouldn't mention who it is. But I was talking to um, uh, one of the UK's top impressionists um, the other day. Uh, and interestingly, uh, we were talking about impressionism um, as, um, as an art form and as a form of humour. Um, and he said that he had come across people actually who had pointed the finger at impressionists as cultural appropriators, which is a very interesting argument. Um, now, whereas I don't buy it. Uh, whereas, you know, I think we have an innate fascination for different voices coming out of um, the same person. It's very incongruous. It, the incongruity principle is very powerful in, in, in all kinds of things. It's why we're so fascinated with serial killers, for example, because they appear on the outside to be very normal, but, of course, they've got these, you know, horrendous alter egos raging behind the scenes. Um, if you have different voices coming out of the same person, uh, then there is a real fascination with that. So we're fascinated by impersonators and impressionists, but actually recent, there's been recent lobby saying, well, actually, you know, if you're doing different accents or taking people off, then why is that not cultural appropriation? Let's not go down that road, mate, because that's another two hours we could sit there talking about that one, but it's a good one to throw out there. But interestingly, it's, 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 it's very, uh, when you look at when you talk to someone, And again, this is something that this guy, this impersonator, this impressionist uh, who I was talking to uh, delved into. And I'm sure you do it. Uh, I certainly do it. If you really like someone, sometimes without knowing it, you end up talking a little bit like them. When you're in conversation with someone, you might adopt a little bit of their speech patterns, might not be their accent. Sometimes it is in extreme cases, but you might unconsciously mirror Uh, the tone or the speed uh, at which or the tempo at which they're speaking so the voice of somebody is something that we find it very difficult not to empathize with so that's where William Costello was coming from there that's one that's another reason an empathy reason when we look when we hear voices um, it's it's one of those things that is a marker of how we gain an impression of someone. Um, and we're very, very susceptible to, 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 to sound coming out of people's uh, of lips and how they sound.
0: Let me throw some bro science at you. Is it the case that accents get locked in and are less likely to change as you grow up but are more likely to change if you are younger. Let's say that you spend the first seven years of your life in Ireland and then you move to America or whatever. You're going to end up with pretty much just an American accent. And if you maybe make the move at sort of 13 or 14, you're going to end up with sort of an Irish-American accent after maybe 10 years. Would that be adaptive in case ancestrally you ended up merging with another tribe, perhaps being taken over by another tribe, and it would be in your interests to align yourself in terms of your accent with the accent of the new tribe that you have joined, because that is going to be one of the key determinants in not making you an outsider.
1: Yeah, I mean, do you know what, Chris? You should I don't know if you've ever studied psychology, mate, but you should definitely give it a go. I mean, I'd never heard that before, um, never thought of that before. I think it's an absolutely cool theory. Um, and I can see that there's I could instantly pull out the hat, a lot of evidence to to back that up. Um, absolutely. The ability. And, you know, I'm going to do a study, actually, because uh, no one's really looked at it. What makes people why are some of us really good at changing our accents? And why are some of us not so good? What makes great impressionists great impressionists? There's all kinds of different things. There's the the flexibility of the vocal tract, for example. So there's all going to be all kinds of individual differences in this. But, yeah, the ability to change your accent and to blend in uh, would indeed uh, confer um, an evolutionary advantage uh, going forward. Absolutely. Going back to your point about simplicity, um, which is related to this. Um, there was a study and, and how, you know, our brains conflate simplicity with truth. There was a wonderful study done a few years ago which looked at menus in restaurants. Um, and two groups, I'm going to the top of my head now, so two groups of participants uh, were given exactly the same menus uh, except for one crucial uh, difference. One of the menus was printed in a very difficult to read typeface, a fancy one and the other half of the menus was printed in a very simple easy to read typeface one half of the participants got the easy to read menu the other half the participants got the difficult to read menu uh the menus were exactly the same once they'd read the menus they were then asked how easy uh, do you think the recipe would be to cook not read but cook it what do you think they found Well, you've got there ahead of me already, haven't you? Those people that were given the menus in the tricky typefaces thought it would be way more difficult to cook uh, than those people that were given it in the simple typefaces. And uh, moreover, were way more likely, uh, way less likely to say that they'd actually give it a go. So moral of the story for restaurateurs out there. Uh, because I'm sure it would be the same in how food tastes. In fact, I think studies might have been done. I couldn't swear to it. I think studies have been done on that. The exactly the same dish printed in a simple typeface. Uh, I think, if I'm right, be saying, I think studies have been done on this. Uh, actually, taste better or rated as tasting better anyway than exactly the same dish that you've ordered in a tricky um, uh, typeface in a restaurant. So there's a there, there's a physiological example of how simplicity. Interferes with with our literal without without physical perception.
0: I could have seen that going either way. I could have seen it that people would have presumed that the more difficult typeface, the more difficult dish to cook, would perhaps be of a more intricate, uh, yeah, yeah, worthy worthy of yeah. a higher price point. A few other tips I've learned from Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy about that any. Oh, I know,
1: I know, Rory He's yeah. a legend. He's coming I know on in him an,
0: well. coming on in a couple of weeks again. Oh, he's his, a good like, lad. you better
1: tell him to leave his vape at home because hey, that never, guy. I'm, <laughs> He'll have yeah. two.
0: I don't know whether you've seen him on podcasts, yeah. but he has two. He switches between them. But yeah, oh, no, that guy's yeah. like a chimney. So he's a good lad. A um, couple of things restaurateurs should do if you're a budding restaurateur. Uh, first thing: take the uh, currency denomination off your menu. It seems that if you just have the numbers rather than the currency denomination, people forget about the fact that they're spending money. Another thing, use anchoring bias. So have some very nice expensive platter first up on the page when you people land on it. it. That should be up there. Now, a final one, I don't think this was used with restaurants, but I can imagine a way that you might be able to work it into either the menu or the advertising. And this is a Rory thing. We actually use this in in nightclub promo. Um, If you involve the viewer in the completion of an advert they have a, you get a, a lot more attentional time so for instance if you were to ask a question this this has happened a bunch um like who should be the next prime minister of the uk and then it could be r underscore s-h-i right and like you already yeah. can complete it yourself but the fact yeah. like that's obviously like an absolutely lame example that the uk yeah. government very well no. may end no up i using. know what you mean yeah yeah um involving the reader of an advert in the active completion of it and the participation of experiencing it has way 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 more uh, attentional input from them and i'm imagining that if you had a, a way of constructing the menu maybe like the dish of the day could be up on a board but if you themed it appropriately that yeah the dish of the day is something you almost have to do a little bit of working out for yourself or yep. whatever it might be uh, i can imagine that that would that would probably be pretty effective at drawing people in
1: Another great point, Chris. Also, that's how construct your own pizzas work, mate, in uh, pizza restaurants. So sometimes you go in, you can order the spicy hot one, you can order the margarita, uh but then there's an option which says, um, uh, "Well, you know, create your own." Uh, so uh, you're absolutely right. This is uh, a a technique which has been known to salespeople for many years. Not so much in what you're saying, in, you know. It, Creating your own pizza has been done for years. The idea of creating a specials menu board is pretty cool, actually. Uh, that That's very good. I like that. Um, I'm getting a bit suspicious about you, mate. I think you've I think you studied more psychology than you're letting on. Uh, but it's called in sales, um, it's called foot in the door, and it's a similar technique. So if you involve someone in the decision, you're way more likely to get a closure. So here's, here's the deal, right? Imagine you go to a department store or a shop, uh and you're looking at a shirt or a pair of trousers a pair of shoes or whatever uh and the person the salesperson will say try it on sir Uh, and you go okay you are way more likely to buy that object once you've tried it on than if you haven't tried it on because you've spent we have our brains like to remain consistent so the way our brains will then work chris is they will say you've taken the trouble to try this on you've there's obviously something about it you like OK, otherwise you wouldn't have taken the trouble to tie it on. If you spent two or three minutes in the changing room, the cubicle, looking at yourself in the mirror, thinking, yeah, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Yeah, maybe if it's a 50 50, you're going to come out and think I spent three bloody minutes trying that on. Well, I'm going to get something out of coming into this shop. So you might well buy that if you're in any doubt it's 50 50 or you might go looking for something else in the shop. So, again, if you can involve someone in something, if you can get them to make, this is the key word, mate, if you can get them to make a commitment, that's the key, then whether that's in advertising, whether it's in relationships, whether it's in sales, same technique, you're way more likely to get a result. Just coming back to one more thing you said there about um, about in-groups and out-groups uh, before I forget it. Um, one of the things when we get online, you were talking about your online thing, and I've you know studied online quite a bit. Uh, it's it's a it's a fantastic laboratory of of, of um, social psychology. Um, you find that when you get situations where ne- never has our identity, uh, Chris, in any era in history depended so much on what we are seen or perceived to say or believe. Uh, that's what social media has done. It's it's a, it's a massive petri dish. It's a massive prism of belief, and we're all in the public arena. And so, when you're in a situation where you are arguing in a public forum, it becomes almost like a surrogate court of law. And so, we don't think like scientists. We think like lawyers. We don't try to get at the truth, and we're all guilty of this. We don't try to get at the truth, Chris. We try to win the bloody argument, mate. And that's what happens on social media. That's why you get people becoming more and more entrenched. One of the reasons why you say you get groups that are knitted together purely through hatred of an outgroup rather than any shared sense of value that they might have. And what you then get is groups that become vacant, become vacuous, and very toxic, mate. That's the psychology behind that.
0: I've got a friend, Gwenda Bogle, who has uh, been on the show a bunch of times. He's phenomenal, and everyone needs to go and check out his Substack. This is a quote from him. The rise of social media is the primary form is of in- uh, social interaction changed the way that we judge people. We once used to judge people mostly based on their deeds, but in the age of social media, we judge people mostly based on their words and opinions because that's really all we see of them. Since we're defined by our opinions, there is a pressure to have an opinion on everything. Problem is, people generally don't have the time or the will to research everything they're expected to have an opinion on, so they copy the opinions of others. And the result is that there is precious few original thinkers out there. The culture war is largely two armies of NPCs being ventriloquized by a handful of actual thinkers.
1: Wonderful. Well, I couldn't have put it better myself, mate. And and also, you can add to that, uh, we were talking, you brought up earlier the need for complexity and the need for closure. Um, You look at the vehicles on which social media operate. You've got very short attention spans. You've got so much information out there. How do you get someone's attention in the information jungle? Where you make something simple. You make something extreme. There's no room for nuance on any platform, really. And so... What your friend was just saying there is absolutely true, but that's also compounded by the fact that actually things are simplified beyond measures that they should be simplified. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely right. You've got that, what you were talking about, that purity spiral or impurity spiral, maybe might be a better. Correct.
0: Term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The complexity of the truth is inconvenient for both sides, I that, think. Ab-
1: absolutely right. Yeah, definitely.
0: Dude. Let's wind this one up. I've really appreciated you today. I think your work's fantastic. Uh, where should people go if they want to keep up to date with the things that you do online?
1: Um, if you want to follow me on, cheers, Chris, by the way. It was absolutely wonderful, mate. Really enjoyed chatting with you. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, uh, my uh, social media handles, Twitter and Instagram, I'm too old for TikTok, mate, um, is at the real Dr. D-R Kev. So Dr. for doctor, at the real Dr. Kev. Uh, you'll find me on there. Um, and if you want to check out some of the books, "Wisdom of Psychopaths," probably the the one that started all over, all going. A uh, couple of books I wrote with Andy McNabb. If you want to become a, if you want to become a little bit more assertive and successful, um, you might want to check out the "Good Psychopaths Guide to Success," which I wrote with uh, Andy McNabb, the SAS soldier, who's a uh, who who is a psychopath, by the way.
0: Kev, I appreciate you. Thank you,
1: Chris. Cheers, mate. Wonderful.